And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we give thanks that you have clearly revealed yourselves, yourself to us, and that you clarify our sight and you speak into our own blindness. And so we ask that you come and be at work by your spirit, even among us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a seminary student, uh, there is a load of reading that you are assigned, and there's only but so many hours in the day that you can actually proficiently read. And so Melissa and I, while we were living in Orlando, um, set apart 5 o'clock or 5.30, I can't remember the precise time, to watch a television show together. And that show was just at the beginning of the breakthrough of HGTV, okay? So this was roughly a little bit over a decade ago, and it was Trading Spaces was the show. It looks crude and rough now, but it was awesome then. They had $2,000 with which they could renovate one room and a house. And so you signed up for the show with a friend and you would swap rooms and your neighbor would do work on your house and you would do work on their house and a designer from the show would instruct that work. Sometimes the quality of the work did depend upon your neighbor. There was one designer, her name was Lori, and she was awesome. She was from Jackson, Mississippi. And I learned some things as I watched Lori design rooms. One of the things I chiefly learned was that Laurie knew how to make things pop, okay? That was the term, pop. And so you would put a brown couch in a room and put orange pillows on it, and that 
popped, okay? Um, and, uh, and it made a room look great. I had never thought of anything like that. I was somewhat of a Neanderthal at that point. And so here, Laurie was making things beautiful, bookending things and, and putting different pieces and accents around, and it made everything come together. All of a sudden, she would add certain colors and small doses, and the whole room would just all of a sudden make sense and be complete. At the same time I was learning this about reading, watching Trading Spaces, I was also reading my Bible and began to understand that oftentimes when the Bible was written, it was written in such a way that things were bookended so that things would pop, okay? And this section that we have in Mark 8, running through chapter 10, is one of those sections. It begins in verse 22 through 26 with the healing of a blind man, okay? A man outside of Bethsaida, and it's an odd miracle. Nowhere else does Jesus touch anyone twice in order to heal them. But the man was seeing but not seeing. He said, I see, but men look like trees walking. What a strange description. So his sight was not clarified. And then I want you to turn over to chapter 10 and verse 46. Jesus travels with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And that becomes a phrase that's repeated several times in this section, on the way. And so Jesus has his disciples on a journey with him. He arrives in Jericho, and guess what happens? There's another healing of a blind man. This time he is touched once, he is healed, and it says the man got up and followed him immediately. And so it's important for us to recognize the frame of what's going on in this section of Mark from chapter 8 through chapter 10. We've just learned that Jesus asked the disciples the question, do you have eyes to see and you don't see? And these healing miracles are somewhat of a parable about the disciples. That yes, they are seeing Jesus, but not clearly. They know him in some manner, but they don't know him clearly either. And Jesus takes them on a journey. A journey framed by these two miracles. Because this is what he's seeking to accomplish in their lives as well. And so there's going to be three major confrontations with the disciples in these sections where he's working out issues of clarifying their sight. And Jesus welcomes us into that same journey. Because what is the import for us, this historical journey that Jesus took with his disciples? The import is simply this, is that no matter our experience with Jesus, we can be just like the disciples, having intense intimacy with him, traveling with him for quite some time, but we need to exercise humility. That the disciples had seen all kinds of awesome events at the hands of Jesus. Storms had been calmed. Demonic men had been subdued. Death had been conquered. Diseases were healed. Jesus had tremendous powers. He had fed 5,000, then 4,000. And yet we read at the end of chapter 6 that the disciples' hearts were still hardened. And so Jesus begins to take them on the way. We find this in verse 27. And Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples a question. And friends, this is the path of discipleship. It is one of constant humility, where Jesus is seeking to clarify our sight, where he is working with us, 
and that we need to recognize, all of us, that we are on the way as well, that we are on a journey with Jesus. We are traveling with him. He is teaching us and instructing us, and we never reach the end of discovery. That when we lose curiosity about our hearts, when we lose curiosity about Jesus, we perhaps are losing our discipleship. Because the bottom line is this, if Jesus only exists to confirm what you already think, then you're not a disciple. Jesus comes to rework every category of life reworking everything about us, our worldview, how we think, how we live. And so discipleship is incredibly humbling. Just ask Peter. He was told he was Satan. He had been with Jesus. He was loyal to him in so many ways. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And friends, what this section of Scripture calls for from us It's just a self-awareness. It doesn't mean that we lose standards. It doesn't mean that we compromise, but it does mean that we become incredibly self-aware about the areas where we, yes, see Jesus, but yet we're still foggy, that we haven't arrived. And in many ways, we're like these boneheaded disciples who are with Jesus, and yet they struggle to get him. This past week, I went into the barber shop and was getting a haircut, and typically the stylists don't talk to you anymore, but I was asked what I did, and it normally is a conversation killer, just dead on. And so if I want silence, I just am honest. (laughs) I'm a pastor. What church? And then I have to clarify the whole apostrophe thing, and it's so annoying. But Christ, no, 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 I went to Christ Church Mandarin is where where I serve. And so then, um, rather than killing the conversation, it actually opened something up. Um, the lady then asked me, she said, well, do you guys require membership for baptism? I was like, incredibly intense question right after you asked me where I worked. And uh, she said, my daughter has a child and she wants to have the child baptized and we want to know whether you require membership for baptism because we've grown up in the Roman Catholic tradition and we haven't joined. We've been away for church for 30 years, but we'd like to have our daughter baptized. So what's your church's belief? So I explained to her how covenant community and baptism tends to work and why people require membership and that, yes, we too did require membership and, um, and encouraged them to consider uh, their church-going patterns and beliefs in Jesus and things. And so she began to open up about why her long separation from church had happened. And she said, well, you know, I... She started to list the excuses. Then she said, you know, at the end of the day... I just never got past the hypocrisy. And friends, that's the story for loads of people. Loads of people see the hypocrisy in the church. And the thing is, is that we don't get past being sinful. But we can get past being proud. And that's the most important point for us to reflect on about this narrative of being on the way journeying with Jesus. That yes, in many ways, our lives will be hypocritical. There will be things that people can point at. Just as for my friend who was cutting my hair, we could have picked her life apart as well, that she didn't escape the label of hypocrite. But the main issue is, are we proud? Because God's forgiven people who journey with him, 
should be very self-aware, knowing their faults and their failures, and never projecting out into the world that they have it all together. And this is what Jesus is seeking to work with in the disciples, but we're going to find them proud and arrogant. We'll read a story in a couple weeks where they're wanting to cut some people out who are healing miracles in Jesus' name, but not doing it the way they liked it done. And friends, the journey of discipleship calls us to this kind of humility. And Jesus, as he journeys with us, though, is going to seek to clarify a couple of things. As we walk in humility with him, he's going to clarify specifically two things that we see this morning. And the first is that he seeks to clarify our expectations, no matter our theological accuracy. Look what happens with Jesus' question. He asked them, who do the people say that I am? And the people had an account of who Jesus was. They were saying that he was John the Baptist back from the dead, Elijah, and some said he was a prophet. Then Peter gives his awesome moment of confession. You are the Christ. Okay? And this word Christ simply means the anointed one. This was the king. Okay? This is from Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. This was the long-foretold king who was coming to Israel, who would come to fix and right the world and restore all things. So Peter is confessing his faith that Jesus is the Christ. But the thing is, is that that term for Peter meant a great number of things that Jesus didn't mean by it. And so while he was theologically accurate... It was not precise. It missed it. And so Jesus in verse 31 begins to tell Peter and the disciples about what his path, the path of his kingdom was going to look like. Look again at what he says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, it's a reference from Daniel 7, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Jesus tells Peter what it's going to look like for him to come into his kingdom and to take up his rule. But you see, for Peter, he had expectations of what it meant to be Messiah. And a dead Messiah was a defeated Messiah in the first century that Peter belonged to. And so if Jesus was going to die... If he was going to be killed, this would imply defeat. It would mean that the religious authorities and the Romans had ultimately won. And so what in the world was Jesus talking about? It couldn't work this way. He was, this is crazy talk for Peter. Jesus was not conforming to his expectations. And so he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. But the thing is, is that we oftentimes don't share in those exact misplaced expectations. But it is common for us to have our own misplaced expectations about how Jesus is to fill his office as Messiah. And our expectations of Jesus, they tend to track with our culture's deepest aspirations and needs. And so what the culture really aspires to and what the culture really needs, that is what we tend to hoist upon Jesus as a church community. 
Think about it for Peter. He wanted a messianic deliverer who was going to come and defeat the Romans and remove them from the land of Israel. And so that's the Christ that he wanted. And Jesus begins to talk about dying in order to rise, and Peter has no category for it at all. Why would he talk like this? When I was a political science student, I did a good bit of study in South America, and there were movements inside of churches in South America where there, um, there were corrupt governments. And so there were several times where the church and some rebel guerrilla movements combined forces. And so there was this intense religious fervor happening along with rebellious factions. And they combined forces together in what was called liberation theology. And there were oftentimes portraits of Jesus produced that inspired the guerrillas and, and faithful ones. And they were pictures of Jesus with machine gun bullets across his chest. But it makes sense. They read stories like the Exodus, and they said, yes, God is a God of liberation, and this is what Jesus is about. This is our Jesus. This was their deep cultural aspiration and need. This is what they wanted. And so they put that on top of Jesus. Or in working with a bunch of African friends over the past few years, I've learned just the damage that's been done to the church by what is commonly known as the health and wealth gospel. But oftentimes there is a deep cultural aspiration for God to bless our lives and to give us everything we could possibly want. And that this version of the gospel has spread and gone like fire throughout Africa and different parts of the world. And it speaks to the deep cultural aspirations of many that Jesus exists in order to bless them and give them everything they could possibly want in life. And so we bring it a little closer to home. Christian Smith, who is a sociologist at Notre Dame, has written a helpful book about American culture. And the way that he defines American culture in the Jesus that we often want in his sociological work he, he observed that people wanted a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic kind of God. Let's unpack that for a second. But it was a moralistic God that is a God who gives us advice when we're in a tough spot. He doesn't necessarily have the right to command us to do anything, but he is a good advice giver, and he gives us wisdom for the road. Moralistic. Secondly, he's therapeutic. That is that he exists for our comfort that we are psychologically fractured people. We have all kinds of different hurts and needs. And so Jesus exists in order to bring us comfort in our existential discomfort. And finally, the deistic part, that is that we don't want God too involved in our lives. That would be too incredibly messy. And so he's supposed to be out there giving us advice and bringing us comfort, but there is a firm firewall in between him getting involved in our personal space. And I think Smith does a pretty great job at analyzing American religion. That this is what we like. We like a little bit of advice for the road. We like a little bit of comfort. And then we like him to stay on his own property, out there. We'll deal with him on Sunday, maybe, if there's not a football game. This is the way we relate to Jesus. We put our own cultural aspirations into it. And as we look at the hard-headed Peter 
putting the first century expectations of Messiah onto Jesus, we need to be careful when we laugh. This humility that we're talking about on the way applies to us as well. It's important for us to examine how we may misunderstand Jesus, how we can be like the blind man. We see, but we don't quite see. It's not all clear. Because what Jesus is saying is that his kingdom comes and the type of king he is is very different. This is why we read from Psalm 22, a psalm where Jesus is crucified and it's on his heart and mind as he dies, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Strong bulls surround me. They're trying to devour me. And Jesus has the audacity to say that in undergoing death, he was enthroned that this was the great way to victory. This was his path in conquering evil. And so he goes on in 9 verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You know what Peter and the disciples were probably expecting? Jesus was going to take them to Jerusalem. He was going to cleanse the temple court because that's what first century messiahs did. And then he was going to be installed as king. That had happened roughly 160 years before when one of the Maccabeans claimed himself king. That's what they were expecting. The kingdom of God would come with power. What happened? Jesus takes the disciples to Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. Then they execute him. He dies. But then he rises. Jesus said that they were not going to taste death until the kingdom had come with power. And friends, that was the king coming, the kingdom coming with power. The reign of God arrived on the earth when Jesus is up from the dead, when he's conquered over evil and destroyed the power of sin, taken his curse upon himself and rendered it null and void in coming back into life. That's the king with a very paradoxical, unorthodox victory. That's the way he fills his office as the Christ, and that is the office that he asks us to believe in. He asks us to put aside our different understandings of him, our deep cultural aspirations, the needs that we often transpose onto him where we make him into our own image. And he offers to be a king that we follow. Because look at Peter's interaction with Jesus once again when he rebukes him. Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is the issue, is that when we're not seeing Jesus clearly, he doesn't just dismiss us. Now many people, it's true, that they read verse uh, 33 and they say, when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he is just outright rebuking and dismissing Peter. That's one way to read this passage. But I think there's a more sensitive way to read it. Remember, Jesus is taking the disciples on the way and he's about to say, follow me. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. And rather than dismissing Peter, I believe what Jesus does with us when we're seeing him but yet not seeing him clearly. 
that what Jesus does is he asks us, he commands us to get back in line and follow him. That's where our sight is clarified. And friends, that's his welcome to us today. And so he seeks to clarify our expectations, and he asks that we get back in line and follow him on the way to the cross. And so that's the first thing he wants to clarify. The second is he seeks to clarify our vocation, welcoming us to follow him. You see, God does bear a cross for us, but in bearing a cross for us, he also bestows a cross on us. Richard Hayes makes this very clear in his commentary. We are not just making a theological affirmation, but a statement about our own identity as well. When we say that we believe in a crucified Messiah and that's the way that victory comes into the world, we should expect that that has implications for our calling as well. Look what happens. Jesus turns to the crowd because he knew that poor Peter was just a representative of what everyone else thought. And Peter was probably behind writing the Gospel of Mark. That's what the church has told us. And so he's very self-effacing, and the humility thing has sunk in. He always puts himself in this horrible position. Listen to what happens. He turns to the crowd. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. And friends, if you have a crucified Messiah who's found victory through death, this has implications for the way that his kingdom comes into the world through us today. And it means that we have to follow him. We have to follow his path. We have to follow his logic and his wisdom And it goes against every intuitive bone in your body. It goes against every cultural value in the first century through to the 21st century. That it has deep implications about the way that we live, about what we value, about what we think is important. And Jesus says that we are to lose our life. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to deny ourselves a few things. He's saying that we deny the self itself, that we lay down our life in allegiance to him, saying that no, through death and resurrection, that is the means of the world's redemption. And so let me join myself to that means and walk in that path, denying myself, laying down my life to be a sacrificial witness to the kingdom. So it would be nice if we could say, you are the Christ with no ramifications. But friends, you get a lot more than just a little advice or a little wisdom. You get a lot more than a God who's just kind of remotely involved with your life. No, with this Jesus, you get one who journeys on the way with you. He's intimately involved in your life. And also, you don't get to have that private label where he doesn't interfere That he doesn't want you to just give parts of yourself. He wants you to give the entire self to him. That in light of what he's done on the cross on your behalf, he wants you to respond in following him, and he gives you the resources to do so. And so he's welcoming us. 
out of all the different worldviews, out of all the different lifestyles, to orient ourselves around Him and His great victory. You see in verse 38 that Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Typically, when we hear these words, adulterous and sinful generation, we tend to think of the people who are just godless. Those who have no interest in the things of God or the things of the gospel. It's important for us to reflect on the way that Jesus uses this word, though. If you remember back earlier in chapter 8, in verses 11 through 13, Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees. And this is what he says. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he rebukes Peter, a devoutly religious man. And so, guys, when Jesus refers to the adulterous and sinful generation, he's not just talking about the godless who are far out. He is also talking to the perverted forms of religion that take place within as well. And this particular section from 8 through 10 is more focused on the interior life of the church and our expectations of Jesus and how he fills our office and how the ways we warp that and get it wrong. That those words don't just apply to the outside. That very humbly they can apply inside as well that we can be that adulterous and sinful generation. And Jesus wants to take us on a journey. He wants to clarify. Now, as a young minister, I remember exiting seminary where the only thing that you have to focus on is your brain. And so the entire focus of seminary is studying in order to gain as much theological knowledge as possible, and then you want to wield that knowledge like a weapon against people. That feels like what you were trained to do for three years. And then you enter into the church, and you figure out that that doesn't work, doesn't get you very far. And so I remember realizing that, oh, wow, okay, I need to not just build up my theological knowledge, I need to work on the way that I communicate. And so I began working not just on building up theological knowledge, but now working on the ways I was communicating and how I was performing up front. And in the environment I was in, I received a good bit of critique, and and I was worked with, and um, and I one time received a seven-page letter on something that could improve in my delivery. And so my focus through that time then became, became... All right, I need to really be focused on performance. And it was interesting because at that time, something just died inside me. Now, I didn't know it. Ironically, I began to get a little better. I began to communicate more clearly. And I remember reading Mark chapter 8 when I was starting to understand this whole journey that Jesus was taking the disciples on. And this particular passage has a certain potency to me because this was the one that God arrested me in. Because the way that I was relating to power and to greatness was via performance and the public eye. And that's what I'd become concerned with. I was concerned with theological knowledge and theological performance on Sunday morning. 
And my soul was vacant, and I was hollow, and I felt like a religious professional. I prayed to God when it was convenient, but he was supposed to stay out there. I could give people good advice. I could do all kinds of things to fill my duty and my role, but I was also missing it. It was nobody's fault but my own. And it was reading these words that I'd long ago memorized through the navigators. Whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here I was using Jesus for what I wanted to get out of life. And so deeply bound up in all my theological knowledge and all my performance, I wasn't seeing him clearly. And I definitely wasn't understanding the implications for what he wanted from me. That he wanted to bear a cross for my sins, and he wanted me to bear a cross in my life. And I was wanting something very different, very different. And this is the welcome that over the next weeks, we're going to look at this life of on the way, what Jesus needs to rework in us, how he needs to challenge us. And we will hear clearly that he intends to bear a cross for the sins of his people. And we will hear clearly that he intends for us to come and live sacrificially, following after his path. That's what the shape the imprint that his cross leaves for those who are transformed by it. And so let's come humbly, willing to listen. Let's let him rework our lives. Because on the other side of that death, Jesus says there's life. That's where real life is lived, he says. Let's trust him with that.